to dilute property rights in the country so that everybody is uh, somehow benefiting from social assistance in a way or another, then it becomes extremely contentious to let outsiders enter. From the migrant crisis to Brexit and the rise of populist politics, immigration is highly contentious. Yet there still aren't border posts across the European Union. Individuals can work across these traditional borders and migrants can get access to full state benefits and services. This is free movement for all its critics remains a core feature of European life, despite the demands for more external controls. Welcome to the IA podcast. My name is Matthew Ash and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising policy question. Today's question, can European free movement survive? To discuss, I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Manuel Comte, who's a historian and expert in European migration, specialising in free movement. He's a senior research fellow at the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy, as well as a lecturer at the Vienna School of International Studies. Emmanuel also authored The History of the European Migration Regime, which was published by Routledge in 2018. Welcome to the podcast, Emmanuel. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get into, I suppose, some of the kind of historical discussion, I'm interested to get your thoughts on what, what is, I suppose, the underlying, I suppose, moral philosophical justification for free movement? Is, is it righteous to say people should be able to move between borders? Or is there, I suppose, a right of sovereign citizens to... Uh, of sovereignty and of citizens to reject people from entering a nation-state. That's uh, that's an important question. There are, when it comes to the case of free movement, there is especially a strong case of uh, of economy, which was uh, economy, as you know, was initially a moral science, uh, which was to uh, to allow people to go where the return on their skills uh, or on the labor force, what the highest for them. So it's uh, it's also from the moral point of view, it's a way to foster uh, human development by allowing people to move where they can find, uh, they can find employment and they can exert uh, their activity in the most profitable way. Then you ask specifically the question of the capacity of a community to organize itself in order to restrict the inflow of foreigner. That's the a most complicated, uh, a most complicated question. And there, the recent reflections on this issue tend to, uh, I mean, the advocates of free movement deny the um, the allocation of property rights to those big collective groups. Because that's the implicit assumption, that is, we are a collective and we have uh, rights over our territory, which is our property, and we are uh, legitimate in rejecting outsiders from our property. I, I suppose the question the is, who, who is the we there? You know, the, the we in this case being, uh, I suppose, historically, the we might have been, you can't leave the estate in which your lord controls and you were stuck to a very small area. And these days, I suppose, it's the nation state or in the European context, it's the, the supranational body. That's, that's the, I suppose, the changing definition of we over time. It remains a nation state, even in the European case, even though there are some agreements at the European level. 
but the, the problem with that from if we uh, stand from more philosophical point of view is that uh, the the equation between property rights as they are enforced on an individual basis and uh, possible rights of this kind on a collective basis creates a range a range of problems because nobody wants to have the collective at the level of control over our own life that uh, the uh, the holder of property has over their own estates so it's a very big uh, it's a very big power uh, to decide that i can decide who enters or not in my house in principle but um if you uh, transfer those rights to a collective you uh, you deny a number of freedoms to uh, to the members of this of this group so the the correct thing and this is where markets can emerge and free society can really emerge is to uh, define the pertinent the pertinent level of exercise of property at the lowest possible level that is uh, typically the individual the individual as property and so then uh, associating by uh, by comparison by metaphor things that are from the point of view of property rights and should be from for the individuals to the collective uh, is misleading and creates and creates a range of problems so it's fair uh, to uh, for someone to have their property rights and to be able to say no I don't want this person to come to my house. I don't want this person to come to my uh, field. And um, but it's a completely different question if you transfer that to a collective level such as the state, because then it implies a degree of cohesion of the body politics of the body of the state, which is not compatible with individual freedom. So is effectively what you're saying there that there isn't really a moral justification for borders that um, the, from, I suppose at an individualist level that people should effectively be free to move to whatever other country they might so please. Yeah, and I will answer to this question as also in a way to transition towards possibly the, the, the next item that is a historical dimension that you mentioned earlier. That is, the the question is, is there a right to restrict entry? Of course, there is a right, and nobody nobody denies <coughs> that. The right is uh, dependent on precisely uh, the capacity to create uh, property rights in the destination country. That is, if someone happens to be a threat for property rights in the destination country, then the body politic can organize to prevent that person from entering the territory. Where, where there seems to be kind of practical issues here, of course, is in the, in the modern um, welfare state um, setup. When, when someone um, becomes a migrant to a new country, there's a question about do they then become entitled to certain benefits? Uh, do, they, do they become entitled to health care? Um, do they become entitled to some kind of welfare payments if they're out of employment? That you, you, the, the migrants are not just making a claim to enter the property of the, the other nation state, but in the modern context, they're also making a claim on the resources of other people within that nation state um, at the same time. Yeah, yeah I, will be, uh, I will be frank and I would say there is no moral claim 
for an outsider to benefit from assistance from a group. I mean, for, to benefit from something to which they have not contributed. That an outsider can enter an insurance scheme, that's perfectly fine. That an outsider enters uh, a, a system of assistance, that is a completely different story. So what you're effectively and, saying is pe people should have the right to move to a different country, but they shouldn't necessarily, or the ability to move to a different country, they shouldn't necessarily expect any benefits or, or any support from the state to do so. No. And that's the tricky part. And that's the tricky part. That's how the increasing involvement of the state into assistance has created the migration predicament. Because then, if you make uh, assistance compulsory, if you dilute property rights in the country so that everybody is uh, somehow benefiting from social assistance in a way or another, then it becomes extremely contentious to let outsiders enter. So the other area in which I, I think it, it can be quite contentious and, and you see opposition to migration, obviously there's you know genuine, uh, I suppose, uh, racist and racial-based grounds in which people don't, don't like the sense of foreigners coming to their land. And, and I think that in no way can be morally justifiable. But something that I, I suppose conservatives will often make as a case is something related to cultural differences, that um, you're allowing them to come to your country that might reduce the cohesion that exists within the existing community. They might bring different values, potentially in the modern sense. You, you look at the fact that um, what is the most homophobic part of the United Kingdom? I think a lot of people will be surprised here it's London, that you get... Um, a much higher opposition to um, people, uh, to, to same-sex attracted people in London than elsewhere. And that's likely because London is made up of a lot of immigrants who are a lot more socially conservative than people elsewhere in the country. Um, and that when a political community allows people to move to their country, it kind of has not just an economic impact that I think we could discuss as well and concern about people taking their jobs, but, which is less economically substantiated. But certainly, I, I think there is something, there might be something to the claims about cultural differences. Here comes uh, here comes another uh, another difficulty. So the problem, the big problem into in that is that um, culture as often is transformed. Migrants culture migrants are not people who have the culture in the country of origin and then transfer their culture in the country of destination. So culture is basically a set of guidance to organize your own existence. Uh, and share it with, with other people. And this uh, this set of rules or this set of uh, principles that uh, people tend to use over their existence are completely transformed given the context in the country of destination. So uh, people talk a lot about Islam. Is Islam compatible with uh, Western countries? Uh, <laughs> when, when immigrants from Muslim countries, let's take an example I, I know well, immigrants from Algeria uh, to France, go back to Algeria, especially those who were born in France and are descendants of their parents, but also sometimes the parents, they have a major cultural shock <laughs> because their culture has almost nothing to do with the, the Islamic culture in Algeria. Yeah. So uh, when we say those people have a culture that is not compatible with us, I would be tempted to say that in a very big proportion of cases, we are actually referring to social tensions in the destination countries that lead people to behave 
in a certain way and even to behave in ways completely at odds with the principles, the values, the norms of the countries of origin. Yeah, I suppose that's an interesting element where, where culture is, is to some extent a dialogue. Um, you can even say in a positive sense that immigrants bring, it's often uh, dismissed, but I think it is a, a truism and a very positive truism, which is immigrants bring different kind of food cultures and they contribute that to the, the place they move to in a, in, a, in a positive sense. So it's obviously not just negative as well, as well as immigrants kind of over time learning new, new kind of attitudes, new forms, new, new ways to treat other people. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, kind of moving on to where you've, you've done a lot of research I think is quite interesting, which is um, this fact of, you know, we have within the European Union at the very least um, what is historically speaking quite an, an extraordinary development, which is the, the fact that there are no border controls when you go between countries. It's uh, uh, beyond the fact that there's also a single currency. Um, for even a longer period of time, people have been able to move without any kind of state restrictions. Um, and that, in a sense, I don't think is particularly controversial within the EU. Um, at least most parts of the EU suddenly became controversial within the UK, and you could argue it was a contributor to Brexit. How, how did that kind of regime of free movement develop w within the EU? How did this come about? Yes, that, that's an interesting case, because... Um... Uh, there, there have been. Uh, you, you say that it's controversial. It has been, of course, controversial at the time of Brexit. But um, if you look at the history of this regime, you see it has been controversial in short moments of time. And I would be tempted to say that as of today, we speak in 2023, and leaving Brexit aside, the free movement of people inside the European Union is not that contentious. It's not something that makes the headlines. 10 years ago, it was, uh, and it contributed to Brexit. Uh, now, it's not that contentious. And actually, <clears throat> I will give you the, the, the solution to the problem. The solution to the problem comes with the enlargement. That is, each time there is an enlargement to a large group of people from immigration countries with much lower living standards, you have a period during which uh, this issue is, is highly contentious. But then it thinks tend to stabilize uh, under the effect also of the other freedoms of the uh, European second market, free movement of goods, free movement of capital and services. But uh, things tend to um, tend to stabilize. So actually, it, it's not that contentious given so, how so, much. So, so what you're effectively saying there is the the, uh, the European enlargement during the was it after during the 2000s of the Eastern European countries, it led to a kind of huge. Um, shock to the system because a lot of people yeah. subsequently moved out yeah. of out of the Eastern Europe um, and yes. including into the UK and it did kind of have a meaningful yeah. demographic impact but then that stabilizes yeah. over time and also the fact yes. that a lot of Eastern European has become a lot richer um, and which means that yes. they're not sending as many immigrants because the, there's fewer economic reasons for people to leave for example Poland while there might have been 10 yes. 15 years ago yes and they also became richer by moving thanks yes. to the free movement of people. But um, step, regarding step, the, the... Stepping back, though, yeah, yeah, let's, let's discuss the history of it. How did, where, yes. where did this begin? Yeah. Where, where does this idea come from? Yeah, so this is, uh, this is something which is quite unusual if you look at the, the arc of recent history. The arc of recent history is that of the, power, the growth and the power of the state. And states are regulatory machine. So they regulate 
they want to regulate things. They want to create certificate. They want to create allowances. They want to create uh, permits. They want to create all these things. And so this is this was the trend, and they want control. And uh, this uh, the European free movement regime has been quite uh, unusual development. Even in other regions of the world, there has been there have been other forms of regimes of free movement on a regional basis, but they don't have the uh, the importance of the European free movement regime and also the, the stability of this regime. So uh, here we are talking about something which was counter-trend. And um, states that developed work permits, residence permits, passports, and so on. And um, my point is that if we want to understand how we got there in Europe, it's the role of Germany is absolutely central. Germany uh, is not a country like the others. Germany, you could even make the argument, Germany is not a country. <laughs> Germany is something that went together in the 19th century. After its loose organization, its loose uh, system of government inherited from the time of the empire, the Holy Roman Empire, was just destroyed by the growth of centralized nation states around Germany. But Germany really never considered itself, except under the Nazis probably, but never considered itself as a centralized nation state, a state like the others. It's a state that is here to disrupt the state system in Europe. And in the case of free movement, it mattered that uh, just strong border controls in a so closely connected uh, system at the European system for the economy and movement of people was not something Germany could uh, could be happy with. Uh, the Germans want uh, easy movements of people across European borders. Uh, as uh, with the upheavals of history, uh, the need people to be able to move out, to move back in, uh, to uh, and even for the economic development of Germany, which has never been overseas oriented. This is a development in close connection to the neighboring countries, which require a degree of back and forth between uh, the homeland and the areas of economic expansion and development. So, so this so is Germany, this is your kind yeah. of uh, the argument that you make through your work, yeah. which I, I yeah. think is probably worth contrasting with some of the earlier views that it was the likes of Italy, the, the countries where people emigrated from, who were the ones who were pushing um, the, the free movement across Europe. Yes, uh, the work of historians is to interpret the archives, but uh, the archives end up giving you. Uh, um, a definitive answer as well. That is what you see is that, of course, the Italians were in favor of free movement. Ask the Mexicans today, are you in favor of free movement with the United States? I doubt they will tell you no. You can even ask the Turks today, are you in favor of free movement within Europe? Uh, I, I doubt they will tell you no. The Italians were no different from that in the 1950s. And they as an immigration countries with a lower uh, living standard than uh, no more affluent northwestern countries, they were, of course, in favor of immigration opportunities, which would reduce uh, unemployment in the origin country and create remittances, allow people also to go back and forth, come back to their country with some work experience that could be relevant as well. So 
Italy was in favor. There is no doubt about that. The, the big question is, uh, why did the regime change? And I mentioned earlier that it was counter-trend. So you need to have a very powerful force to do something that is counter-trend. You need, uh, Italy just didn't have the capacity to lead a, a, a country like France to abolish its, its work permits or residence permits to Italian workers. And tell the French, oh, no, it's uh, outdated now. You, you no longer need that. No, the French well, will never did, have that. Give, that. Give, me, give me, this is all post-war West Germany, what, what kind of years did, did Germany go from you need a work permit to work in Germany to if you're Italian or you're from another, I suppose, European community country, you're able to move? The, the, the German had, uh, so from 1953, labor uh, labor shortages in, in Germany started to appear. In 1955, they negotiated the main agreement, the, the first big agreement with Italy. And at the same time, but that agreement was just a recruitment agreement with work permits, residence permits, and so on, selection even of migrants. But in the meantime, the Germans wanted at the multilateral level a, a regime of removal. From 1955, that's the dominant direction of German West German foreign policy. And um, the, the Germans made it because they had the strongest economy in Europe. And so they would be able to absorb the inflow of Italians. And the French were really reluctant until they were convinced of that. To give you an example, Germany uh, operated the regime of free movement as we know it as early as 1964, with uh, the second European regulation about that. The French waited in, until 1968 to really open up the market. Back then, Italian immigration in France had was insignificant and the French actually would have liked to have more Italian immigrants because they were just receiving many more migrants from North Africa or Portugal. And so for, uh, the French point forward, it was as the European community expanded. So the, the UK became part of this uh, when it joined yes. the, the EC. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. So the French followed the Germans and the Germans carried the day because they had the strongest economy. They could stabilize the European migration system, but they wanted it for the reasons I have mentioned earlier. So here, what are we talking about? Just to be clear, when we talk concretely in that case about free movement, we talk first and foremost about the abolition uh, of visas. This is what started huh? the abolition of visas, the abolition of uh, residence permits and work permits. And the abolition of border controls uh, was uh, something that came later in the in the early 19 in the 1990s, actually. But, you know, showing your passport rapidly at the border is not something different. When the UK used to be in the EU, you had still to show your it's passport. Like this is the zone. Yeah. This was it was the UK was not in the Schengen zone. The others were, but the, the 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 question of the control at border in itself had lost its importance as long as European nationals could freely go without work permits, residence permits, and visas to another European country. So it seemed to me, at the very least, that this wasn't that controversial um, in the second half of the the twentieth century as it developed, um, and potentially because it was. Um, free movement between countries at a relatively similar level of economic development. Obviously, you can say Germany was stronger than Italy um, and you know, France was somewhere between or whatever it may be. But in the general scheme of things, they weren't um, necessarily a, a bunch of uh, a very wide economic gap between them. 
um, and a sense in which there are a lot or an overwhelming number of people moving until you do get to that expansion I was talking about in the 2000s. Is that the right way to think about it? Or is, was there other, other, other historical points where this did become very controversial um, but was, I suppose, pushed through anyway? Uh, yes, but the, it was it was controversial. Uh, it was controversial. The Italian immigration was controversial in in other countries, in Belgium, in in Ita in France, and the the the, the differences in living standards were were quite substantial. Though of course they are uh, they were lower than perhaps uh, the, the differences you may have between a, a Western country today and a very poor country in the global south, but they were significant and the closer also the country of origin, the stronger the flow. So uh, uh, quite significant differences in living standards uh, meant that the situation was controversial for the French and that's why the French were so reluctant. And then in, in the early 1980s, you had the second enlargement to a large number of countries of immigration, namely Greece, uh, Portugal and Spain. And Portugal used to be the most important country of immigration to France and it was still a very poor country in, in Europe. So that um, led to the uh, implementation of a transition period precisely because uh, destination countries, especially Germany at that time, didn't want to receive too many too fast. And uh, what they missed at that moment was the free movement of services, which allowed some migrant workers to move as posted workers. And this was very contentious in the early 1990s. Uh, before the enlargement to Eastern Europe, the question of posted workers wa was already a very big point of contention. Of course, in 2004, when uh, uh, about 80 million people uh, joined uh, the, the, the area of free movement, even though the EU back then was much bigger, it was, it was it's fair to say, the biggest shock to the system in its history. And uh, those countries were indeed particularly poor. The two poorest came a bit later. These were Bulgaria and Romania, and they came in 2007. And so, just 2.5 years, uh, a bit more than 2.5 years after the, the, the eight Central and Eastern European countries that joined in, in 2004, that uh, taken together represented a major, a major shock, and it contributed to making the question quite, uh, quite. Um, uh, contentious in many uh, European countries. The point has now been made quite extensively that the fact also that the UK chose not to implement any transition period for the uh, for the recognition of free movement to those new entrants in 2004 also made it even more uh, contentious in the UK. There is as well the question of the, the, the characteristics of the British uh, welfare system that uh, rely a lot on assistance, whereas you have other welfare systems in European countries that rely more on insurance, and that is if you are not working, your ent entitlements to social security are quite limited. So uh, anyway, in the mid in 2000, there was a period during which the free movement of people became extremely contentious. And it lasted about a decade, so that when the British people voted to exit the European Union in 2016, we were basically at the end of this big uh, wave of 10 years of contentious around the movement of people. Since then, 
the issue has settled on quite fast. Even even during the Brexit negotiations, it was not it was something the UK wanted out, uh, but um, it was no longer for uh, the British public something massively important in the years after the referendum. Yes, so, I mean, of uh, course, with Brexit, yeah. there are also other issues going on beyond immigration in terms of As well. sovereignty yes. and, and control. But I don't think we, this is the right place to get into them. What I, I, another area where I suppose immigration um, has also become quite controversial, and it's not free movement per se, although it, of course, interrelates to that, which is um, the, the, the uh, continuous migrant crisis, both, I suppose, into the EU from the Mediterranean and, and then more specifically for the UK with um, the mass arrival of, of boats and thousands and thousands of people crossing the English Channel from France. That in itself seems to, um, I suppose, increase controversy about immigration in general and seems a very difficult issue. As, as, so, as, as you know, you've said, you're generally an advocate for free movement of people. Is there not a bit of a challenge here, though, when it's, I suppose, extremely uncontrolled and uh, people taking dangerous journeys... Uh, and something that I suppose politically is quite toxic as well for even people who want to support immigration. Yes, um, I, I believe that the free movement of people is the best way to organize uh, to organize uh, precisely the, the movement of people. Uh, I wouldn't say that I am an advocate in the sense that I would just say now let all those people in. The question is more complex. The question is, why is there a problem in the first place? That's the question. And you need to disentangle why, uh, what are the various factors there. We mentioned it at the beginning, that assistance, uh, assistance systems make uh, immigration extremely controversial. That is, if for whoever is on the territory, you, you recognize certain entitlements to public benefits, then it's clear it is going to be very controversial. Second thing is that uh, states have regulated a lot the labor market. And when you have regulation of anything, you have a usual suspect in mind. You have a usual worker in mind when you regulate the minimum wage, for instance. You have a usual worker in mind. This worker must be like this. He must have this level of skill <coughs> somehow. And, uh, and therefore, that person should be able to have a job at that level of earnings. This is, when you regulate, you need to have a blueprint of what you want to regulate. The problem is that those migrants who arrive in destination countries and come from sometimes much poorer countries do not fit this model. And so um, in many European countries, uh, the minimum wage can be a serious uh, obstacle to those people finding uh, finding uh, a way to earn a living honestly. And so here you realize the problem, that is on the one end, you have a, a variety of regulations that prevents those people from working. So sometimes these are official regulations. For instance, asylum seekers, they cannot look for a job. So they're in the country, but they cannot work. Indeed, they that's, cannot, uh, that, that's the case in the UK, I think for the first, at least very first least six months that they're in the UK, they can't work. So, And in some countries, it's even longer. So they, you, have, you have minimum wages, you have interdictions um, that make it extremely hard for those people to enter the economy, to sell their skills, to, to sell their labor force in the economy. And on the other hand, you have entitlements through, uh, through 
public welfare systems, including, for instance, for, we are talking about asylum seekers, they are accommodated in uh, centers that the taxpayer is paying for. So if you put together extensive regulation of the economy, of the labor market especially, and entitlements for whoever is present in the territory, you are sure to make immigration an extremely controversial matter, uh, even sometimes for people from uh, similar countries. So uh, you need to that will be that this is something that will have to be disentangled. I'm sorry. I'm sorry well, to this say. This is what they sometimes talk about with, I suppose, push and pull factors. So for a lot of immigrants, uh, especially asylum seekers, the push factor is that they're coming from much poorer countries, um, sometimes countries where uh, there are you know, serious human rights issues or often there are serious human rights issues. But I suppose what you're saying is there's also pull factors here that is, that is encouraging yeah. a lot of people to move, which is effectively the welfare state. Um, and yes. associated yeah. benefits. I think something else, uh, and I want to also get your thoughts, I suppose, is that we haven't discussed properly yet, which is the economic um, claims around immigration. I, I think uh, the, the usual view, of course, um, is that immigrants come and take people's jobs domestically. Um, and, of course, I don't think there's good economic support for that view whatsoever. The, uh, immigrants expand the, la the labour supply and you know, create more jobs overall. Where there are, I think, some interesting questions around things like um, to what extent does, does, does immigrants encourage lower productivity because you have a more labour-based rather than capital-based economy? And it, it, there's, there's a lot of claims going on in the UK that the reason why we have such a low productivity economy is, is because of low-skilled immigrants. I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but that's something claim we hear a lot of. And then I think the other element, economic element here is what, is the, what are the kind of um, burdens that um, immigrants put on society, not just on the welfare state, as you've discussed, but also... Um, public services, but also on, like housing. The UK has a massive housing crisis uh, because we haven't built enough homes to um, serve the domestic population. And you add on uh, not building enough homes to the domestic population with immigrants, and it could leads to frustrations. And people say, "Well, what the heck are we doing having all these immigrants if um, we don't have the housing for them? We don't have the public services the high enough quality, um, and we're a bit worried about what impact they're going to have on wages or productivity." Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, no, just also to 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 f to finish the point. What what I was saying is that I am not an advocate of free movement, uh, because under the current conditions, it's clear that it's going there is going to be a problem. That is, you let people pass at Europe's southern borders, they will find themselves in such uh, uh, in such dire situations when they will reach their final destination, that it's not so surprising that a proportion of them uh, commits, uh, commits atrocious things. Uh, so I am not an advocate of that, but I am um, saying that the current system as it exists just doesn't work. Uh, extensive uh, government regulation of all those uh, questions of the labor market and also extensive state intervention in welfare, in welfare. Uh, are creating their own bugs, and immigration is a, a symptom of those bugs, because you need uh, to uh, you need to have a flow of people for the economy to function, and so what we have is that we have a, an overregulated uh, um, 
overregulated countries that do not work properly. And it will have to happen at some point. I don't know when it will have to happen that these things will fall apart because they do not work and immigration testified of them. And when you have an immigrant that um, that commits uh, rape or uh, atrocious crimes and so on, not because this person was deeply evil. And uh, I mean, to some extent it was, but I am here talking about the overrepresentation. It's because uh, also those people find themselves in conditions that in which crime, uh, crime tends to prosper. So there is a need to rethink, uh, to rethink the role of the state in the in society. That's absolutely fundamental. And then about your, your, the points uh, in the labor market. Does um, does uh, immigration put downward pressure on on the wages of people? I would say yes, probably. <laughs> yes, yes, to some extent, to some people who are highly substitutable with immigrants in the short run, you can have some downward pressure on their wages. Yes, I'm not going to say the opposite. But in the um, what you have as well is that natives are often in a much better position in the local labor market than immigrant outsiders. And so what you often have as well is that the natives can get promoted when you have immigrants. So if you have a native that is completely substituted, uh, that can be substituted by immigrants, and then they can see the wage cut down. But for natives as well, who are better integrated, uh, have more local, uh, locally relevant capital, this is as well an opportunity. And immigration contributes to economic growth as well, as long as you allow immigrants to work. It's true that if you don't allow them to work except to, to steal, then it's not going to contribute much to economic growth. But if they come and they operate in a free market, yes, it can, uh, it leads to economic growth and that natives can benefit from that. So the question is complex. The question is then, do you need to regulate the entire labor market? Because a few people who are uh, low skilled may see their wage go down. To some extent, in here you can make uh, you can make a philosophical argument that is, then if those people are so highly can be so easily substituted by immigrants, is it fair that they earn much more than immigrants in their country of origin, because they were just born in a richer country, they can earn much more? No, in a in a um, that's a philosophical point. That is, is <laughs> that because be you are born. It would be hard to sell to say to people that, of course, well, you're low skilled. You don't deserve, <laughs> you don't deserve that income you have and immigrants should take your job instead. I, I don't know if that's a, I sort of don't think politicians will start standing up making that argument anytime soon. Yeah, but you benefit, you benefit from barriers to entry. That's what you, you benefit from, not from your real value for society. That. Yeah. And uh, regarding housing, uh, regarding housing, then we were talking about disentangling a variety of factors. The housing market is probably one of the most biased markets in in current in the current economy. I honestly, I don't know what housing prices mean. They don't mean anything uh, today. They are wrong prices, which at some point, one way or another, will have to be corrected. Because what we have today is that people don't buy houses when they buy houses. They buy uh, a life insurance when they buy a house. So that's a completely different story. We are mixing in the same good 
the housing market that is market for receiving housing with the capital market that is a market to keep your capital over time so that's also something so that has to do with uh, the monetary system in which we operate in which you have regular increases in the monetary supply that's uh, and the housing market has been the, the place where uh, people have put have parked their money to try to resist to uh, this constant depreciation of the value of the fiat currency. So then, talking about immigration inside this completely biased market, uh, yes, of course, uh, if you have increased uh, demand, you will have increased uh, prices. But uh, it turns out that one of the key economic sector in which migrants work also happens to be construction. So um, migrants, we were talking about downward pressure on wages. Uh, so yeah, we, we can have a downward pressure on wages in construction, which uh, leads under a competitive system to a downward pressure on prices as well. So the two effects are, uh, can cancel one another. That is migrants yeah. can increase uh, demand on the housing market, but that can also contribute to lower prices on that market because they are heavily involved in construction. So these things, these things are, are quite uh, are quite complex. So, so Dr. Emmanuel Comte, thank you so much for joining the IEA podcast. It's been a, a fascinating discussion. I'm glad we ended there on housing, as uh, almost you know every IEA topic can in some way come back to the the UK's or even many developed countries' broken housing markets. Um, if you are enjoying the IA podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. And also, if you'd like to learn more about the IA and read our research publications, you can just visit iea.org.uk.